Welcome to the Upbeat Podcast, powered by CoChart, a show that's dedicated to providing resources for families impacted by childhood chronic illness. For articles, videos, and show notes, visit our platform at theupbeat.cochart.org. Welcome, everybody. This is Greg, the uh, executive director of CoChart and host of the Upbeat Podcast. CoChart is a nonprofit organization that does free arts and athletics to kids impacted by chronic illness, currently in LA, the Bay Area, and San Diego, and looking to expand to new cities uh, over the next few years. And we are incredibly excited about our guest today. Dr. Theopia Jackson is chair of the Clinical Psychology Degree Program at Saybrook University in Pasadena and the president of the Association of Black Psychologists. She has a long history of providing child, adolescent, and family therapy services, specializing in serving populations coping with chronic illness and complex trauma. Among her many professional accomplishments and affiliations, she serves on the medical advisory councils for the Sickle Cell Community Advisory Committee, which is a patient-driven advocacy and education group, and Bay Kids Studios, which helps children with serious illnesses experience the joy of creative expression. Dr. Jackson, we are so thrilled to have you with us today. Thank you so very much, Greg, for the invitation. I'm excited for this opportunity, particularly given all that we're contending with in the world today. Absolutely, and I wanna start there. You're the first person who we've interviewed since this pandemic has really spread as, as far and as wide as it has. And so everyone is affected in some way, obviously, but for families uh, with chronically ill kids, this is an especially difficult period. What are some of just the most basic concepts that you recommend for families who are already dealing with health fragility for coping with what's going on in the world today? Thank you for the question. First and foremost, I'd want to remind the families to acknowledge and embrace all that they're feeling and dealing with, to not try to shy away from it or keep it hidden or push it down or anything of that nature. I think that our families who are dealing with children who are living with health issues are uniquely positioned to serve as guides in this pandemic. And what I mean by that is because they've already had to wrestle with seen and unseen pandemics, being curious about what is in the best interest of their child, what's going to bring them, place them in greater risk, and what's going to bring them great joy. Now, of course, it's exacerbated by the realities of the pandemic because it's now also impacting their actual liveliness, if you will, because in these families, most times, not true all the time, but most times, Everyone else is, quote, healthy as they're trying to support their loved one. But now everyone, quote, is at risk. So, so that's my first and foremost is to genuinely honor and appreciate what they're dealing with. Then remind themselves of what's helped them to do as well as they have been to date, given the pandemic they've been forced to live with around their child's health issues. And so then of the sort of coping skills that families already have been using? What are some of the things that you see in families that are some of those most common go-to mechanisms that they've probably, that, you know, really healthy families have already been using that, that they can just continue to rely on throughout this? So many families who have been gifted with raising a child with health care issues 
have, I hope, have already learned how to cope with the fears of the reality of what they're dealing with. Some of us in the, in the field would say they've already sort of grieved whoever they thought their child was going to be so they can be ready to accept who their child is going to be and who, and who their child is, as well as who the family is in relationship to that child. I say this to say that when I think about this pandemic, that these families may be having similar processes, right? How do we talk about what's happening around us, the realities of this fear, while we're still trying to keep our child safe and not be crippled or paralyzed by the fear? And this may be basic coping strategies in terms of, you know, I have some people who are used to, okay, I'm going to give myself a 20-minute pity party, let all my scary fears come in and embrace them, and in 20 minutes, I need to let that be done and move on <laughs> to right. living. For other people, it may be embracing mindfulness practices, and it's important for me to note that most of what we say these days in the United States about mindfulness practices doesn't go as far back and deep in terms of our own um, cultural histories and whatnot. Many, many communities of color have always had some form of mindfulness or altered, altered way of being. May this be those communities who are used to um, being in conversation with loved ones who've passed on, to lighting incense, having um, prayerful contemplative modes where they're, like for myself, I spent a lot of time with my grandmother who has um, transition or past years ago, but I find strength in remembering her and talking with her. So that too is a form of mindfulness to be very clear, as mm -hmm. would be uh, allowing themselves to be lost in song or lost in music. Uh, this is really true for a number of uh, folks from the faith-based communities who ground themselves in a certain rhythmic music of gospel spirituals or whatever the music may be, and they can really get lost in that for a moment. That idea of getting lost in it is mindfulness, allowing yourself to be in a, quote, respectful altered state where this altered state actually centers you more in yourself. For our children, this, this can show up in, when they get into their deep play, particularly when our children are young enough that they still have their beautiful imaginary friends, that they're really getting centered into themselves so that what's going on around them, outside of them is not as much of a psychological, emotional threat. These types of mindfulness practices, as well as the more traditional ones of you know, closing your eyes and thinking about a particular space and time or, or, getting, or really working on your breathing, these allow our brains enough space, if you will, for lack of a better word, to kind of come back and take in the realities of what's going on around us. If you imagine this like a, like a, a glass, if you keep pouring the water in and you don't create space for some of the water to come back out, it begins to overflow and, and burst out. So we have to find a way to release some of the fear, tension, and worries from both our, from our mind, our bodies, and our spirits through whatever feels right for that particular individual. After our parents have done that, then they can also support the children and the loved ones in their lives doing something quite similar. Uh, and again, in an age-appropriate way, in a skills-based developmental way, how mm -hmm. do you create that soothing centered space? If it's a, a rocking, if you will, if it's how you set up a particular space in your house that's intentional to sort of have cool lighting and have living plants there, and beautiful. So sometimes if you move into a certain room, you can feel the exhaling that happens in your body based on how that room is set up. So mm -hmm. the families may want to do something like that. They may also may want to have a healthier 
intentional bedtime hygiene where, again, the family may decide to come together in silence, listen to particular songs, sing in particular songs before they drift off into their separate bedrooms for sleep. As I am mentioning these, these are not prescriptive. My intention is that they will be creative enough to tap into the family's capacity to create what's the right ritual for them. Mm-hmm. And, and listening to it, it almost sounds like a, a menu of different techniques that, that people could use, where some might be a better fit for some families and, and others for others, but that there's so many different options um, that it, it's got to be reassuring that if a family has heard a piece of advice and tried it and it didn't necessarily work for them, that there's something else that's totally different that might achieve the same result. Correct. So what I would say, I would couch this under what we call humanistic principles, where the belief is that each of us have our own capacity to heal and cope. And the role sometimes of professionals may be healthcare providers or even my beautiful community within coach art. Sometimes our role is to help the families and the clients tap into their own creative spaces. And, and, and so, as you said, these are just, quote, menus to get for them to consider, but it may also, I hope, remind them of something else. Like, like a parent may remember something that their parent did or even their grandparent did that really brought peace and calm to them. So how might they do something similar with their children? And this might be, again, a ritual of cooking together, right? I want to mm-hmm. pay attention to that up until this pandemic, many, many times our lives were such a hustle and bustle of getting here, there, and everywhere that you couldn't count how many times someone said, I wish I had time or right. had an intention of reaching out and, and connecting with someone else or doing something very intimate with their child or other family members and literally did not have time. So though I'm not minimizing the realities of the pandemic, I'm positioning it in what we call a strength-based space in the sense that the pandemic is also creating space and time for us to genuinely reconnect with ourselves and with our loved ones in a way that when we come out of this pandemic, and that's intentional words, we will be coming out of, that our quality of life should be collectively and individually different now because this pandemic has said, stop everything you're doing, reconnect, and be clear about who you are so you can adjust to this threat that's happening around you. I, I want to go back to something that you said that I thought was really interesting in the idea of parents needing to grieve who they thought their, their child was going to be. Can you talk a little bit more about what that process looks like to, to grieve that and then maybe what the benefit is, what the, what the next step is after sort of making peace with that, that you know, makes for a more enriching life going forward? Right. So let me first contextualize where that's coming from. It is extremely quite possible that when parents realize that they're about to be parents, may this be through multiple ways, not only in the birthing of a child, but through adoption, fostering, whatever that process is. It is a human nature to have either a spoken or unspoken image of who this child is going to be. And so when a child is presented with a chronic illness that is impacting who they are, influencing who they are, then the family sometimes needs to let go, as I said, what those hopes and dreams were based on some assumptions. Assumption that this is going to be a child who's able to run and, you know, 24-7 without any breathing issues. It could be the assumption is this going to be a child who's able to be an orator. I don't know what those images are. Those are going to be unique, but that's a human nature to have, as I said, spoken and unspoken 
ideas of who your child's going to be. Sure. And that grieving process could be anywhere from something as simple as having a conversation about this with someone in a trusting, loving way where the listener genuinely understands what you're doing and is ready to hold what you need to hold. It could be also done in such a way of drilling if this is what someone is, what's most impactful for them, or it could be engaging in other ways of communicating them. Some people may even desire a ritual where they actually may write out whatever those hopes and dreams were, then bury that, right? Or, or burn it, right? As mm-hmm. just sort of like really symbolically letting it go. And wow. then how do you create a space to let in, right? So how do I... When I think about my children who are living with sickle cell disease, if you will, the children with, with um, um, cerebral palsy, whatever the issue may be, how do we then say, okay, let me really feel who my child is and love my child and support him or her to be the best person they can be. And sometimes that means becoming a pseudo healthcare professional where you learn everything you can about this illness, not only in terms of its science, if you will, the medicine behind it, but also learn about the spiritual possibilities and um, developmental possibilities of youth and adults who have lived with the exact same challenge or similar. You have to surround yourself too with loving ones who've been on this journey before so you can learn from their experiences and then set your own path. And of course, for many of those who are either part of an organized faith-based setting or just wanting to be involved in their own spirituality, how do they tap into that? Because their love for their child should be, and their love for themselves should be strong enough to allow them to let go of what needs to be let go of and embrace and be ready for what's meant to come so they can all transform and grow together. That's a really powerful idea also. Dr. Jackson, you, you mentioned that uh, families who have been dealing with chronic illness and, and health fragility for years can serve as sort of guides for the general population during this time. And I know you've got five different coping mechanisms that you've mentioned that uh, families might use who have been dealing with chronic illness that, that might apply to us all right now. Uh, what would it look like for any of us right now to throw a 20-minute pity party. What, what exactly do you mean by that? And what would the benefit for any of us be, uh, to be for that who are going through this? Let me also put this in context, too, because I'm a strong believer in practicing what you preach. So in my leadership roles, I'm responsible for supporting many, many individuals. May it be the faculty and students who report to me in my role at Saybrook University, or may it be the much broader international community who are members of the Association of Black Psychologists, which are uh, people of African ancestry from all over the, the globe, as well as you know, contending with my own family and myself personally. So that's a lot to hold. And by no means am I uh, placing this in any type of um, um, relational way with what our families have to contend with, but I'm just trying to be transparent about the realities of my suggestion about these pity sure. parties. So every now and then there are times when I just sort of have to like shut down completely and allow myself to have a good cry mm-hmm. to embrace that. And that's really important as, as, as a black woman in a country that sometimes perpetuates the idea of a strong black woman. And I know many, many of our families 
who are living with, uh, who are supporting children with a chronic illness come from diverse backgrounds. So we want to, we want to pay attention to what are some of the cultural messagings that are out here that may or may not be as helpful for us during these types of times when so much is being asked of us. Simply as mothers, right? Sometimes appreciating that our fathers are just as important, but there is something in our country about this idolizing mothers being so strong to deal with everything, that it's okay to say, you know what? I just got to lay my burdens down, cry this out. I have to dance it out. I may have a strong sister friends. Um, just, just today, I found myself on a Zoom call with two of my dearest colleagues as we were planning another response to this pandemic. And soon as I saw them, I burst into tears and I allowed myself to have that space and time. And they, and they knew it too, because that's part of the cleansing. That's part of the letting go and honoring this real emotion to create more space for me to shore myself back up and be ready to do that, what I need to do in front of me to stay living. Mm -hmm. I also want to ask you, I know you talk about create, creating a soothing space, somewhere where you might be able to go in your home and feel more relaxed. Do you have any specific tips for how to create that space? What type of space in our own homes is right for it and what makes a space soothing? Well, for right now, I think, again, we're in a very unique situation. Uh, I first want to honor the fact that we live in different spaces, right? So it's not so much about how much space you have, because that can vary from family to family, which I think is some of the um, challenges in our country now is that we keep forgetting that folks live in different spaces. So what I mean by that, you may have uh, two generations living in a two-bedroom home to one generation living in a seven-bedroom home. Mm -hmm. Right. However, the idea of creating a space is still the same. Once again, you can decide based on where you are, what is that space? If it's a corner in one area or if it's a full room or if it's somewhere in the backyard, it would you would be thinking about what makes you feel good. What brings you peace? What are some things that are important for me, given my own spiritual background and a belief in the importance of my ancestors around me and a strong Christian face around Christianity, I do have a certain space where the, the pictures of, of my ancestors or those who have already died in transition, but are very important. They're all right there. So there are times I walk past that room and I just say, Hey mama, just whatever that may be. So wow. it can be something as tangible as just having a corner where all those images are to something that's more creative, as I said, because it could be a corner in the child's room. Well, the child also is very clear about, so this is my quiet space and this is my play space. Mm -hmm. you know, they may want to put a nice bean bag over there or whatever the issue might be. It may even be something that's symbolic. It doesn't have to be a physical space. It could be that when, they're, when the parent and the child or the family members are holding a particular image, uh, item from a stuffed animal, that it's, it's their own, it's something that prompts them to say, okay, I'm going into me right now. I'm going to take care of me. I'm going to slow it all down, my heart rate, blood pressure, my energy level, and I'm just going to allow in some more stuff that makes my body and mind feel good. A social scientist would call that, you know, letting go of stress and becoming more balanced or, or taking in um, this type of energy. I'm trying to keep it real taught because yeah. this is also the language you can have with children, right? Sure. Across sure. the ages. Let's slow our bodies down. What do we feel in this, right? Um, let's make sure our feet are feeling solid on the ground. Let's wiggle our toes, you know, and make that bottom feel real good. So I'm answering your question in a way that I hope, again, 
will allow the listeners to create their own space. It could be a physical space, large room, small room, to a symbolic image or item, to a ritual of behaviors that you do that allows you, in, and the contents of it will be driven by what makes you feel good, what's important to you, what brings you peace. And that could be a family space or individual spaces as well. Yeah, that's great. That idea, I, I love the idea of creating a space in my own home that is filled with your ancestors and sort of family reminded that that sounds so grounding. I, uh, that's fantastic. Um, I also wanted to ask you, I know one thing you talk about with parents when their child has a diagnosis is sort of grieving the life that you had had in mind for your child. Do you think that same idea applies as all of our lives have sort of drastically changed in the last month, that there might be some sort of process of grieving what our sort of old normal was before embracing and being able to more thrive in this new normal? As a developmental psychologist, the very first thing that hit my head among a number of them was thinking about all of our young babies and their rituals the rituals of high school graduation, the rituals of moving from preschool to first grade, all of those typical things that we in our country have sort of not only taken for granted, but really um, highlighted as rites of passages, if you will. Mm -hmm. So I do think that collectively, these are the types of things that we're going to need to re let go of so that we can embrace more creative ways of tapping into that. Now, once again, I can't say that one is better than the other and, and this new normal to use your languaging is not about replacing the old because it, it really is about letting go, letting go of that, grieving and mm -hmm. acknowledging the pain of all of that. And then being able to say, okay, now what, what can I be open to? How do I make this feel better for me in this moment, meet my needs at this time. And I'll say, if we look at social media, we have phenomenal examples. I just really want to applaud our society for the creative ways in which they're using virtual technology from, I just saw the other day that there are, there are certain spaces where, you know, where the children didn't have a chance to do their performances, right? So the mm -hmm. families are record, they're letting them still get dressed up and record it. They're, they're having the recitals in the home. And then they're just sort of sharing it with one another. The same thing. Oh, that's sweet. I, I can imagine some of the rituals that are happening within coach art. You know, I know that you're still functioning in this virtual way, but how do you also expand it in a way that allows for these types of shared experiences? So, you know, we all can't sing together at one time on Zoom is what I'm learning. However, because <laughs> we've tried it, trust me. Right. However, what's really beautiful, though, is if you have, there is a particular song and each one has a verse, if you will, and then the creative way in which you line it up so you can all watch each other and share it. That's a, because when you get into these new ways of being, if you're showing up in the fullness, then you're going to genuinely enjoy that because it is within our human nature, our spirituality to survive will allow us to adapt. So those moments will be just as feltness in their importance as those that we are grieving and needing to let go of. Wow. Yeah. You've just had so much really helpful and interesting stuff to say. So are there any, um, uh, any, anything that you want to, um, uh, for us to mention? Now, I 
actually, I think for me, what I'd, I'd want to do, of course, there's always the um, affiliates that I'm part of that we can tap into. So for those who are wanting to learn more about this idea of humanistic principles and strength-based approaches and, and, and how to do more holistic healthcare approaches, then of course I do want to refer you to our Saybrook website. We can learn more about not only our degree programs, but offer also some of the other opportunities that we may have for training and being a support to communities. And then I would also want to draw one's attention to the Association of Black Psychologists. If you are in fact a member of a cultural group that can sometimes have unique challenges in caring for a child with special needs because people already have misunderstandings or some other um, stereotype of belief about who you are as a cultural being and then add a child with a healthcare issue and all of a sudden things can get further complicated. Please do feel, feel comfortable to reach out to Association of Black Psychologists. If, if we're not able to be of direct support for you, we will make sure that you are connected with our other ethnic psychological associations to support you. And then my last one, I would be remiss if I didn't do this, is just back to Coach Art itself. I, mean, I am blessed and privileged to have been part of the team that brought Coach Art to the Bay Area, and I want to appreciate them for starting their work with the community of children who are living with sickle cell disease because in the healthcare industry or in the diagnostic world for children with different issues, sometimes those with sickle cell disease are less attended to. And it's primarily because again, it tends to have a black face. So all those issues are in there. But I'm closing by saying what Coach Art is doing and who they are, I think it should be a blueprint for anyone else who is trying to be part of promoting more holistic health and wholeness in our community. So I want to thank Coach Art for that genuinely. Oh, wow. Thank you so much. Um, and so uh, for folks who are interested uh, in finding out more about uh, Saybrook, it, the uh, URL is saybrook.edu, S-A-Y-B-R-O-O-K.edu. Uh, for the Association of Black Psychologists, it's abpsi.org. And of course, for us here at CoachArt, it's coachart.org, C-O-A-C-H-A-R-T.org. Dr. Theopia Jackson, thank you so much for your time today and all of your incredible wisdom. And uh, we cannot wait to share this with the entire community. Uh, so uh, deepest gratitude and, and thank you so much for joining us. You can find more content like this at theupbeat.coachart.org where we have blog posts, podcasts, and YouTube clips, as well as a Facebook group that you can join and share your own helpful advice with other families who are dealing with social and emotional questions about kids going through chronic illness. So we hope to see you there. Thanks so much.